Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at upmc.com slash findadoc. The murders of Ford University of Idaho students in November was a mystery that transfixed the nation. The question many asked was who would stab to death four young people in their rental apartment located in a quiet college town? Investigators believe the mystery may have been solved when 28-year-old Pennsylvania native Brian Koberger was arrested at his parents' home in Monroe County last week. Koberger, who was a criminology doctoral student at Washington State University, was returned to Idaho Wednesday night and faced court arraignment yesterday. Charging documents outline some of the evidence that led to Koberger's arrest for the first time. Joining us now is Lauren Patterson, who has been the lead reporter covering the murders for Northwest Public Broadcasting at Washington State. Lauren Patterson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right. So what did you learn at yesterday's arraignment and from the charging documents that were released yesterday? Koberger has been charged in Latak County with four counts of first-degree homicide and with felony burglary for allegedly entering the student's house with the intent to commit murder. The judge made clear that the maximum penalty for the offenses are life in prison or death. The white car was captured on nearby surveillance footage driving around late at night near the killings. This was what first led law enforcement to Koberger in late November. Investigators were also able to find footage from cameras in Pullman and at Washington State University that identified Koberger's car on the WSU campus where he was living. But they spent time building up uh, other evidence, including cell phone location records. All right, so let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, the car was one of the keys. But DNA and, as you mentioned, cell phone tracking would seem to be pretty compelling evidence that they had as well. That's right. Police say they have DNA. It was found on the empty leather sheath for a knife found at the scene. The DNA was taken from the snap of the knife sheath. Detectives say the sample matches family DNA they identified from the garbage they took from Koberger's home in Pennsylvania. Law enforcement should be able to confirm a match by taking a sample from the suspect in custody. Another thing we learned from the affidavit is that one of the surviving roommates heard crying and a thud from one of the victim's rooms. She didn't know what was going on. The dog was barking. She opened her door and saw someone dressed in black with a mask walking toward her. She said he walked by her and toward the sliding glass back door. Now, there seems to be in the timeline a hesitation or at least a, a delay in the time that uh, this occurred and the roommate saw this and a 911 call. Was that explained at all? We don't have those details yet. There are parts of this affidavit, you know, that are redacted. So we might just have to wait for those details and see if they come out later. That cell phone information showed that Koberger had been near this apartment before multiple times, right? Investigators pulled records from Koberger's phone all the way back to June 2022. Those pings revealed he was in the area at least a dozen times before the attack on November 13th. All but one occurred late at night or early in the morning. 
So is there any evidence that Koberger knew or came into contact with any of these victims? We don't know those details yet. Also, WSU is currently not talking to the media at all, so we haven't been able to talk to faculty who knew him. Mm-hmm. Now, the victims also, had... Also, I wanted to... Oh, sorry. No, I'm going to add something to the, to the one you just asked me before. Mm-hmm. So they all, all but one occurred late at night or early in the morning. The cell phone pings show Koberger on the move late the night of the killings, but the phone stops pinging about an hour before the crime. It starts up again with a location south of Moscow. Law enforcement say that's consistent with someone turning off their phone, maybe putting it in airplane mode so they're not leaving a data trail of their location. And it looks like he took a long way back to Pullman through some back roads. But this guy was a criminology student. Uh, And just turning off that cell phone for a couple hours, he had to know if that was his intent, that his cell phone would ping other places that could place him at the scene. You would think so, but again, we're going to have to wait and see what kind of evidence comes out. We haven't really heard much from Koberger, what he was thinking. So, you know, we as the reporters working on this, we're interested to learn those details just like everyone else. So I understand that uh, this was a packed courtroom yesterday when Koberger was arraigned. What was the mood in that courtroom or uh, what was it like? That's right. The room was packed with members of the media. Some journalists had to stand at the back of the room. The front row was reserved for family. Some of them became visibly upset when the charges were read. There was crying, lots of emotion. Hmm. Uh, So how many family members were there? It's hard to tell. It was probably around 10 family members. I definitely saw Kaylee's dad, Steve Gonsalves there. Um, And it looked like possibly other members of her family, but I'm not sure exactly who was there. How close were they to Koberger? Um, the front row is pretty close. I mean, about as close as you could get, less than 10 feet. That had to be an incredible scene when uh, the person who was accused of uh, killing your son or daughter is, is that close. Washington State is in Pullman, Washington. It's just a few miles from Moscow on the University of Idaho, correct? That's right. The university towns of Pullman and Moscow straddle the state line between Washington and Idaho. We even have a name for this area. We call it the Palouse. People go back and forth for shopping, dining out, parties, and work across state lines. And I understand that you live in Moscow and are a graduate of the University of Idaho. What's that like? How would you describe Moscow before these murders, that there was so much attention that uh, has been given to Moscow, and now afterwards? Moscow is this small town in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, just surrounded by winter wheat fields. I had such a wonderful experience here. It's a calm, small town. Things like this don't really happen here. It was. It's one of those towns where you don't really lock your door at night because you're just not worried. And as soon as this happened, I mean, I was double checking my door every night, carrying my gun, like a lot of the locals were. It was such a stressful time and still is in some ways because we still don't have closure, like a cloud over the town. I think different people are feeling and experiencing this case on different levels. I get messages constantly from alumni I went to school with about how they're glued to the case, how they feel for the families. I'm an alumni of U of I. I walked where these students walked. I partied where they partied. When I first heard details, I was having flashbacks to playing beer pong at Sigma Chi right up there on Greek Row. I met my now husband at U of I. My husband's currently an instructor at University of Idaho, and Kaylee Gonsalves was one of his students last year. Mm. 
one of the surviving roommates was also one of his students. We live in Moscow, so of course it's important to me to keep following this case because this is my community. And also, Northwest Public Broadcasting has its broadcast license through Washington State University, and the studio I work out of is on the Pullman campus. I interviewed a WSU criminologist for background information on homicides cases in our studio on campus in mid-December before any of us knew the suspect was living there. Some of the routes he took listed in the affidavit by law enforcement are the same streets many of us take to work and to school. I talked to one of the U of I students who says now that there's a suspect in custody, she feels confident coming back. She has bear mace and a taser. I talked to another vandal parent, a vandal dad, who is not sure how he feels about his daughter going back to school despite a suspect being in custody. The communities of the Palouse have been shaken by this from the start. It's been stressful for locals to see their small town in the national headlines for the past two months. But now that we're nearing some possible closure, I think people here are anxiously waiting to see what happens next. School starts up again for Washington State University on Monday and for University of Idaho students next Wednesday. As I'm out in the community this weekend, I can get a better feel for how everyone is thinking about this. And just to let everyone know, Vandal is the nickname for the University of Idaho's athletic teams. So when you're referring to Vandals, that's uh, w- what you're referring to. What can you tell us about uh, Koberger's time at Washington State? WSU officials confirm Koberger completed his first semester as a Ph.D. student in the university's criminal justice program earlier this month. He applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022 and mentioned helping rural law enforcement using technology to enhance public safety. According to the affidavit, he at some point posted a Reddit survey asking participants to provide information to, quote, understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime, unquote. You know, there's a lot that can be read into that after uh, he is accused of uh, of these murders. So what happens next in uh, the legal system? The next hearing is set for January 12th at 10 a.m. I'll be there. Mm-hmm. A, a, a few other interesting aspects about the legal case, I did speak with a University of Idaho law professor who said that the defendant does have a right to a speedy trial so we can watch and see if that's something that the suspect wants to push for. Um, and we don't know yet, but the defense also could push for a change of venue on the grounds that, you know, maybe they feel they couldn't get a fair trial where so much sensationalism has been happening. But we'll just have to wait and see how it pans out. Talk about that sensationalism and uh, that attention. Obviously, this is something that a town like Moscow Pullman has never gone through. That's right. I can't remember a time that the little town of Moscow was receiving not just national, but I mean international attention for this case. There's something about the vibrancy of these young people that's captured the attention of the world. And I just feel terrible for the families because they're going through all of this on the world stage. And um, it's it's. Every day I wake up on my phone and I get alerts from major news organizations. I've met reporters here from the New York Times, from CNN, from NBC. They're flying in from from everywhere. And it's sort of adding an extra layer of stress in some ways to to the locals. But at the same time, a lot of people are curious about what's going on. And it's, it's, it's been a whirlwind. 
Lauren Patterson works for Northwest Public Broadcasting at Washington State University. Lauren, thank you very much for your insights. Thank you for having me.